Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. So I'm here with Jason Colavito, who is an author and editor who's based in upstate New York, whose work explores the connections between history, science, and pop culture. He's the author of numerous books, including Jason and the Argonauts Through the Ages and Faking History, Essays on Aliens, Atlantis, Monsters, and More. And his latest brand new book that we'll be talking about today is called The Legends of the Pyramids, Myths and Misconceptions which uh, is a number one best-selling new release in archaeology on Amazon. So I'm really excited to talk to you, Jason. Happy to have you on the show. My first question to you is just, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and why you chose this subject to write a book on? Well, I've been interested in ancient history, mythology, and folklore for most of my life. Um, it goes back, weirdly enough, to when I was a kid and found my father's old stash of ancient astronaut books. He was a fan of Eric von Donegan and the, you know, the whole Chariots of the Gods thing back in the 70s. And some of those uh, things were sitting around the house and I read them and uh, as a teenager got interested in archaeology and ancient mysteries and that sort of thing. And the older I got, the more I learned, the more I realized that a lot of what uh, those books we're talking about was, you know, complete nonsense, but I never lost interest in the general subject matter. So uh, over the years, I've explored a lot of different aspects of some of the weirder areas of history and especially um, myths and legends about uh, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece and uh, related mm. uh, topics, because that's, you know, the particular area of interest for me. You know, Jason and the Argonauts was a big one, uh, not just because I was named after the uh, movie Jason and the Argonauts, the one with the Ray Harryhausen special effects and skeletons and all, but um, also because uh, Greek mythology was such a big part of my life growing up. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I have to admit, uh, we focused mostly on ancient Greek history in this show so far, and I know virtually nothing about ancient Egyptian history other than when it intersects with the Greek world and that kind of thing. So for those of us who know very little about the Great Pyramids in Egypt, what do we need to know, starting out, what do we need to know about the actual history behind them? What's that basic summary that, that we should have in our heads? Well, the short version is that a very long time ago, the Egyptians kind of uh, competed to have better and better tombs because they believed that preserving the body was a way of preserving the soul's place in the afterlife so that they would achieve immortality. So what happened was over the course of centuries, the Egyptian elites built increasingly large um, tombs called mastabas, which were sort of these flat platforms that would have a tomb inside of it. And along the way, the architect for one of the pharaohs got the idea of starting to stack mastabas on top of each other. And that made the first step pyramid shape. And naturally, all of the pharaohs that followed wanted to outdo the original in some way or another. And so uh, pyramids got bigger and better as they developed smooth sides and took on the classic form that you think of when you think of the three uh, 
massive pyramids at Giza. And eventually, you know, the amount of resources that it took to build these humongous pyramids, and when you just think of the sheer volume of stone that it takes to build something like the Great Pyramid, you can see how it'd be a huge drain on any sort of, uh, on any country's uh, resources, let alone uh, one that had periodic uh, problems uh, holding together a central administration. So over time, the pyramids got smaller again, and eventually the uh, kings of Egypt moved on to creating elaborate tombs underground where they'd be less conspicuous and less likely to be robbed. So that's, you know, the short form of why there were pyramids and how the pyramids developed. But what was more interesting is that while this was a relatively short period in, you know, the grand history of the world, the shadow of the pyramids was very long. and it had a hold on the popular imagination across the Western world. And this idea of trying to find the real truth behind the pyramids has driven a lot of mythology, a lot of uh, legends, and a lot of fantasy over the centuries. I remember growing up, uh, maybe in grade school, high school, hearing about how it was claimed that historians did not know how the they could have built the pyramids. That was one of the big kind of thing, ideas that was out there, that we hadn't been able to figure out how it was possible that people thousands of years ago would have built the Great Pyramids at Giza. And so I guess one of my first questions with all of this is, do we know how the pyramids were built? And do we basically understand the pyramids? What is with all of the um, uncertainty or kind of stuff out in the culture about the great pyramids? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> Pick the hardest one first. <laughs> uh, well, the thing is that we have a very good idea of how the Egyptians built the pyramids. Um, there's actually a papyrus that survives. It was found um, in recent decades in which um, one of the officials who was overseeing construction of the Great Pyramid actually talks about how they were um, gathering the stones and transporting them to Giza to make the pyramids. And there are um, images on uh, the tomb walls that show Egyptians moving uh, heavy objects with uh, particular teams of people and ropes and what have you. Mm. So in the sense that, uh, in one sense, we know how they built it in you know the most technical way there is some uncertainty about the exact methodology that was used for particular uh, parts of the construction there's a debate for example about how the stones were lifted to the highest levels of the pyramid did they have an external ramp for example that went around the pyramid on the outside or did they build the pyramid as sort of a spiral staircase that they were gradually filling in be called an internal ramp to get the stones up there there are a lot of you know questions like that that are relatively minor points um, in the grand scheme of things but are hotly contested in terms of knowing the exact details of the construction there is no evidence however that there were any spaceships or levitation beams or magic wands that were used to put the pyramids together but for a very long time, there has been a uh, tendency among those with more extreme beliefs 
to try to find these kind of magical explanations for the pyramid and to look into it and see superior technology that's beyond whatever we happen to have at our current point. So even though ancient writers attested to the fact that the pyramids were built by human beings using known methods, even though we have, you know, a papyrus that explains what they were doing. And even though we have other evidence like the um, remains of the village where the workmen uh, stayed during the construction of the pyramids, despite all of that, there has been this tendency to try to find in the pyramid evidence of something magical, mystical, and wonderful. And as I talk about in my book, there are a variety of reasons for that, but a lot of it goes back to this um, Judeo-Christian idea that everything in the world has some sort of connection to God and to the divine. And if the pyramids are the greatest buildings in the history of humanity, uh, medieval people began to think then they had to be part of God's plan and had to have a direct relationship to the divine. Hmm. So in order to fold it into the Christian cosmology, and keep in mind that the pyramids aren't mentioned in the Bible, which is surprising because the Bible has enormous number of references to Egypt in it, but it never once talks about pyramids. So because of that, they're trying to find a way of explaining how these humongous buildings, the biggest buildings in the entire world at the time, weren't mentioned in the Bible. So they went looking for them in some, in the uh, Judeo-Christian history and in the Judeo-Christian view of um, world history. To that end, they plucked out this uh, mythology that surrounded the uh, patriarch Enoch, who uh, in Jewish lore had constructed uh, two pillars, a pillar of stone and a uh, pillar of brick, and on it inscribed all of the wisdom of the ancient world that it would survive Noah's flood. Mm. And that sort of gets applied to the pyramids. So the pillar of stone is now suddenly the great pyramid of, of Giza. And once you start saying that this sort of biblical um, divine wisdom is associated with a building that previously had been considered, you know, a pagan structure, then you get this notion that it must itself represent something divine. And so uh, later people began looking into the pyramid for evidence of advanced mathematics, of um, encoded prophecies, of... Um, geodetic knowledge of superior um, moral, ethical, um, literary, and scientific wisdom. And it is from that particular mix that this notion that the pyramid is somehow special, that it exceeds the knowledge uh, that the Egyptians could have had at the time, takes root. And by the 19th century, you have an entire uh, plethora of people who are advocating all sorts of extreme ideas for what the pyramid could have, should have, or would have been. So it sounds like the rise of Christianity. I think you also talk some in your book about uh, the rise of Islam as well and yes. how uh, these new religious paradigms had to filter in the, the pyramids into that somehow. And now that leads all the way up to the modern age because you know, some of this stuff, and I, I don't know if Graham Hancock is connected into all of this stuff with mm -hmm. the pyramids, but I come across his stuff. People give me his books. Mm -hmm. People want me to look into it. I haven't really looked into it a whole lot, um, mm -hmm. but I, I'm vaguely familiar with 
these television shows, ancient aliens, you know, all <laughs> yes. where I just don't, and I don't really know what to make of a, a lot of it, but it sounds like there are still things being debated at a scholarly level about the exactly what happened with the pyramids, but there are not historians and scholars sitting around thinking it, that anything that we're looking at would have been impossible for them to do without some sort of, you know, far more advanced civilization or aliens or something like that intervening. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's, it's a, uh, w- what do you think about some of these more modern um, versions of some of this with the television shows and, you know, the Graham Hancock stuff? Again, I don't want to, I don't want to slander the work he's doing because I'm not that familiar with it, but how does this, what's the current landscape of some of this stuff? Well, the interesting thing about all of those uh, ideas that you just mentioned is that while you're calling them modern, almost none of those ideas actually are modern. Mm. Now, uh, what I talk about in the book is this medieval legend that develops uh, primarily in the Islamic world, but it has its origins in late antiquity um, among the uh, Hellenized Christians and Jews of Egypt. And there's this idea that the Great Pyramid was built by Hermes Trismegistus, the um, well, sometimes divine, sometimes culture hero, the sage of wisdom of Egypt. He was, you know, a conflation of the Egyptian god Thoth and the uh, Greek god Hermes and took on a life of his own as sort of the patron of alchemy and all, and all of that sort of thing. But there's this notion that develops that Hermes is Enoch. And so because they're one and the same, Hermes built the pyramid and Enoch built the uh, pillars of wisdom. And therefore these guys are the same, the pillars of the pyramid. And the great pyramid is actually a monument that was designed to preserve knowledge from Noah's flood, the same way that Noah built the ark to preserve life from Noah's flood. Mm. So this particular myth develops in late antiquity and is expanded in the Islamic era in a number of different ways, Uh, sometimes with Hermes as the hero, and sometimes much more often in later uh, centuries, he's replaced with a uh, fictitious king uh, called Surid. Now, some people think that Surid actually is derived in a roundabout way from the Greek, from one of the Greek uh, interpretations of Khufu's name, uh, for example, Manetho, the uh, Egyptian priest who wrote one of the uh, most famous uh, discussions of Egyptian history in ancient times uh, called Khufu Sufis. And so there's this idea that perhaps Surik derives in a roundabout way from that. It doesn't really make a lot of difference one way or the other, except that in the story as it developed, Surid gets a uh, prophecy of the coming of the flood. And so he orders the construction of the Great Pyramid in order to preserve all of the wisdom of ancient Egypt from the flood. He puts in in the pyramid all the scientific instruments, all of the magical spells, all of the astrological knowledge. And he puts all of this high-tech material in there. He puts in um, vast amounts of treasure and he seals it all up in order to keep the pyramid safe from the floodwaters. And this story, becomes the foundation for everything that follows Mm. because the story associates the pyramids with the stars. It associates it with the antediluvian world, meaning 
the period uh, before the flood, which in later times was associated with the period of uh, the Ice Age, which is something Graham Hancock is very interested in. And it associates the pyramid with, um, it associates the pyramid with this idea that um, there is this body of superior technology and wisdom that predated humanity that comes from this lost civilization mm. that has vanished uh, from the face of the earth. And all of that is what transfers over into modern pyramid legends. And in fact, when you go back and look at the books by Graham Hancock or by Eric Von Donegan or Robert Boval or some of the other people who write about um, pyramid theories speculating that the pyramids represent the lost wisdom of Atlantis or whatever, almost all of them cite directly or indirectly one of these um, Arabic myths. Uh, Eric Von Donegan, for example, quotes um, one of the stories of Surat at length. Graham Hancock in uh, several of his books also makes reference to it. So it's not like they came up with these ideas on their own. They're derived right. more or less directly from these medieval stories. And what these people are doing is trying to reanimate these medieval myths, stories that were invented almost wholesale out of spare parts. They're combinations of Greek mythology, Christian legend, and uh, very small scraps of actual Egyptian history. But they're reanimating this with kind of pseudo-scientific gloss to make medieval fantasies seem like plausible scientific uh, hypotheses. Do you think that the theories about these, what I would consider to be, I guess, alternative <laughs> history or you know, alternative theories that they're not really, they're not peer reviewed. This isn't coming from, mm -hmm. from uh, you know, scholarly work generally. It's kind of doing an in run around that and going right into pop culture. My question is Graham Hancock seems like a smart person. You know, some of the people involved in this seem like they're serious, smart people. Do you think that they are onto anything? Is there anything of value in looking at these alternative histories of ancient Egypt or these ancient civilizations? Are they, are they touching on a blind spot in, of the of the actual historians and stuff is there anything there or do you view it at purely as kind of some sort of pseudo-scientific thing to try to make money and gain attention and that kind of thing well when you ask if there's anything of value i suppose that depends on what you would define as being of value mm. any idea can be valuable if it sparks interest and enthusiasm and uh you know has leads to some sort of um, outcome. One of the most famous Egyptologists um, of recent decades, uh, Mark Lerner, he uh, got into Egyptology, for example, because he was interested in Edgar Cayce's prophecies and what Edgar Cayce had to say about how Atlanteans built the pyramids thousands of years ago. So, you know, good things can come out of bad ideas. So there is, in one sense, value in popularizing Egypt and popularizing excitement and enthusiasm about ancient civilizations and about pyramids and what have you. The question is whether the benefits that come from doing that outweigh the amount of misinformation that it puts out 
and outweighs the amount of damage that it does to the public understanding of the actual history of Egypt by doing so. And, you know, for a long time, it was possible to say, you know, it's fun, it gets people interested and enthusiastic, so what difference does it make? But in recent decades, we have seen, you know, a growing disturbing trend of these kinds of ideas being used for some of the darker parts of conspiracy culture. And we know for a fact that people like the QAnon conspiracy group, um, especially uh, white nationalists and other um, extremists have latched on to speculative ideas about ancient history in order to promote their hate agendas. And that's been the case you know, for a very long time. The Nazis, for example, original brand Nazis, not the neo ones, the original brand Nazis were interested in all sorts of alternative history too. They sent people to the ends of the earth looking for Atlantis and the supposed lost homeland of the Aryan race and what have you. So there is this uncomfortable relationship between um, speculative history and political extremism. So you have to be careful when you propose these extreme ideas, you know, how people are going to use them. Now, the people who propose these ideas say, well, I'm not responsible for what people do with them. I'm just putting out facts. But if you're putting out facts that aren't true, if you're putting out speculation that has no actual basis in reality, then you are sort of responsible for what becomes of these speculations that aren't, you know, actually grounded in history and grounded in truth and are just sort of coming up to the edge of um, something disturbing. Not to pick on Graham Hancock, for example, but in Fingerprints of the Gods, he calls the lost race that he says, that he said at the time, was responsible for Egyptian civilization and pyramids around the world. He calls them white 12 times. And that is something that gave aid and comfort to people who wanted to look for a lost white race. Now, over the years, Graham Hancock has has, um, moderated his position on that quite a bit. In his last book, He instead decided that the lost uh, civilization of um, Atlantis was instead populated by what he sees as the precursors to the Native Americans. So he's changed his ideas markedly over the years and is now, you know, um, very strongly advocating away from his the earlier position that had been embraced by uh, white nationalists. But there are much less scrupulous people who are still pushing those old narratives. There's a guy named Frank Joseph, for example, who puts out a lot of alternative history books about Atlantis and pyramids and what have you. And he uh, makes no bones about the fact that he sees the uh, ancient times as being dominated by white people. And no surprise, Frank Joseph is actually the pen name of a guy named Frank Collin, who had been the uh, past head of the uh, American Nazi Party. He doesn't want you to know that now, does a lot to hide that, but He's the same guy who went to the Supreme Court for the right to march his neo-Nazis through a Jewish neighborhood and won. Wow. Yeah, I I got into a little bit of this with Mike Cole, a previous guest who wrote wrote about Sparta, writes about Sparta and how that's all interpreted and Spartan imagery and ancient Greek imagery (laughs) has been used, you know, as recently 
you can see it in the January 6th attack on the mm-hmm. Capitol and all of that. So people are, so there is a cost and there is a risk to sort of, uh, you know, just asking questions, just creating mm-hmm. a cloud of uncertainty around historical events and, you know, civilization. And, un- and, and the very strange thing with some of this is that, you know, a show on the History Channel or, or whatever might have a hundredfold, you know, bigger audience than uh, a scholarly article or something like that that comes out <laughs> or a thousand fold or, you know, whatever. And so yeah. often, I mean, I would say many, many more people are familiar with Graham Hancock and have heard of Graham Hancock than most of the world's leading historians, for instance, um, which is sort of a, you know, these ideas appeal to the popular imagination and there, like you said, there, there is a cost and there is a risk when it falls into hands of people that want to use it for nefarious purposes. Well, consider this, for example, uh, Ancient Aliens has an audience that at times has varied between one and two million weekly viewers. When you compare that to the number of people that read a book to have a bestseller now in this climate, a bestseller will push maybe 20,000 copies or so. There are only 50 or 60 books in the entire country of new releases that will sell more than half a million copies in any given year. And that shows just how small the audience for literature is today. And you see that what's on television is many, many, many times, even when an audience of 1 million is by the size of our country, 320 million, very small, but compared to the audience for books or especially academic articles, which might have like 300 readers in total, because they're all behind paywalls anyway, uh, you're seeing this vast amplification effect of these bad ideas. And especially when you look at the uh, last surveys that were conducted, um, over the last uh, decade or so, Chapman University had uh, done a survey of American fears. And every year they asked questions about how many people believed in a lost civilization like Atlantis or believed that space aliens had visited Earth in the past. And over the decade, you could see a steady increase. And in the last uh, published survey, it was something like more than half of all of Americans believed in Atlantis. And I forget if somewhere between a third and half of people believed that space aliens had visited Earth in the past. And it's really hard not to see that as the effect of ancient aliens. Because, you know, ancient aliens isn't just a TV show on the History Channel. If it were, you know, its audience is relatively small compared to the whole country. But it's also a cultural phenomenon. You know, there was a Super Bowl commercial featuring the people, featuring Giorgio Sukalos from Ancient Aliens. He shows up on TV shows as a guest star. And there's this idea that, this is supposed to just be, you know, fun and goofy. But when you look at the resonance that that has across culture, you see how each one of these fun appearances becomes a reinforcement for the central idea. Every time he shows up, that reinforces in the mind of the people watching, oh yeah, aliens built the pyramids or what have you. And that sort of repetition, which doesn't just occur because of ancient aliens, but across all of cable television, which has similar documentaries, and especially now with Netflix and other streaming services, putting out a host of similar programs and also recycling old episodes of Ancient Aliens and other uh, pseudo-documentary series. You see that that 
idea of the past is getting amplified and reinforced. And it becomes sort of self-perpetuating propaganda because that's the only message that a lot of people are ever going to see because it's not like there are many places to go to re- to uh, get uh, propaganda about actual Egyptian history. <laughs> You're not going to have um, an entire cultural complex dedicated to telling you they were tombs and tombs alone. <laughs> no one's going to put up a poster on uh, Sunset Boulevard telling you about that. But you can go and see posters for ancient aliens. You can see, you know, exhibitions of ancient aliens merchandise. You can go online and buy your ancient aliens tchotchkes. And you can go repeatedly to uh, conferences sponsored by the History Channel and by others in which you can go and commune with your fellow ancient aliens believers and uh, reinforce that message over and over again. So you see that for most people, what they know about history pretty much stops when they graduate from school, and you don't really think about it very much after that, except where it intersects with the media. And the media, for better or for worse, and mostly for worse, give enormous amount of time to a lot of very bad ideas about history. One thing that crosses my mind, you talked about the uh, the impact of these other ideologies, Christianity, Islam, other religions that became prominent and how that started to shape a rewriting of the actual Egyptian history. I also wonder to what extent you have, at least with the Great Pyramids, you have structures that are much older than I think most people realize, and that the scope is just so massive, even by today's standards. I don't know what if there was any precedent for something of that size at the time. I wonder to what extent the age and the size of these buildings has created a sense in which people just are willing to kind of believe anything or it just seems you know very strange so there must be a weird explanation for some of this stuff what what do you think about that well the size of the pyramid is definitely the reason that many have tried to find some kind of extreme supernatural or otherworldly explanation for it it's simply the great pyramid is simply bigger than almost anything that uh, people down to the modern era had ever seen but it is not unprecedented because there were a series of pyramids leading up to the great pyramid and each one was bigger than the one before it so what you see is a succession of pyramids going from the step pyramid which was originally a stack of mastabas um, up to the Great Pyramid. So the intermediate ones are gradually bigger as they get uh, larger and more technologically sophisticated. So there's a clear evolutionary pattern there. Now, a lot of his, through a lot of history, people didn't know what order the pyramids were built in. So they didn't have that information in order to see the line of succession. In terms of the age, however, The Great Pyramid was built around 2450 BCE, give or take a little bit. So while it is very, very old, it is by no means the oldest structure on Earth. It is by no means um, one of, it is not the, uh, it's not so ancient that it would be unprecedented in history. And for most of ancient history, the Greeks and the Romans knew about when it was built more or less, give or take a thousand years, and had a pretty good idea of how Egyptian history 
uh, where it was situated and um, not as accurate as we have it, but, you know, reasonable. It was really after that with the identification of the pyramid with Noah's flood that it started to be imagined as moving backward farther in time. And the Arabs came up with astrological ideas that they could use uh, measurements in the pyramid or symbolic associations to calculate um, the age of the pyramids um, and the Sphinx based on the stars. And they projected it back tens of thousands of years. And suddenly it was, you know, one of the oldest buildings in all of history and had to have been built right at the dawn of time before Noah's flood and all of that sort of thing. And it's that notion that there's some kind of ancient level to the pyramid well before known history that carries over into these modern conspiracy theories. Graham Hancock and his colleagues, for example, tried dating, if not the pyramid itself, at least the layout of the pyramid to around 10,500 BC, the era of Atlantis and the Ice Age. And their ideas about why that is can be traced directly back to medieval Arab, um, Arabic language, astrological and astronomical historical treatises that try to make the pyramids some kind of representatives of the stars. Wow. Interesting. So I only have a couple more questions for you. I think this has been fascinating. What do you on the, we've talked a lot about misrepresentations of ancient Egyptian history mm -hmm. and where things kind of went off the rails. Um, what about on the, on the other side, do, is there something in modern pop culture, a TV show, a movie, a book that you think pretty accurately portrays ancient Egyptian history and kind of holds true to what we actually know about it? Uh, is there something that comes to mind for you? Uh, truth be told, I don't watch a lot of Egyptian themed TV and movies. So the last one I saw was, oh, what was that really bizarre one? The uh, movie about, I think it was called Gods of Egypt or something. And that was wildly inaccurate, <laughs> a very big budget uh, mythological fantasia. <laughs> it does so, seem like there's a lot of stuff that isn't accurate out there. Yeah. Um, the first thing I think of is the mummy franchise for, <laughs> for whatever reason. I don't, we probably don't even need to discuss well, that. Well, the thing is that the whole vengeful living mummy curse of the Pharaohs thing that also comes out of these same pyramid myths because the same uh, book of legends that talks about the uh, pyramids as being from the time of Noah's flood also talks about King Surid uh, having put uh, centuries in the pyramids, statues that would come to life um, in order to guard the pyramids against any who might uh, try to rob them. And that in a very mangled way because of a 19th century novelist who couldn't remember what she read in the book uh, becomes the curse of the pharaohs when she um, wrongly applied it to what was going on after the uh, uncovery of uh, Tutankhamun's tomb. She, uh, her name is Marie Corelli, and she uh, helped to invent the curse of the pharaohs and did so by drawing on these same medieval legends that also gave rise to the pyramid uh, stories. Oh, well, uh, thank you, Jason, for, for talking to us. Um, obviously your book is available on Amazon. 
Like I mentioned at the beginning, it was the number one best-selling new release in archaeology. It's titled The Legends of the Pyramids, Myths and Misconceptions. I'm sure that your other books are available on Amazon as well. I assume they are. Is, yes, there, they anything, are. is there anything else you want to add about all of this? And also, where can people, where else can people follow you or learn more about your work? If there is a, you know, do you have Twitter, website, et cetera? Yes. Uh, interested people can follow me on Twitter at Jason Calavito and can also learn more about me on my website, jasoncalavito.com. There you can find links to all of my books, my articles, and my other research, as well as an extensive library of ancient uh, texts and other strange materials that I'm sure all of you will be very interested in. Um, also links to all of my social media are there. That's jasoncalavito.com. Awesome. We will obviously provide those links as well in the show notes. Thanks for talking to us. This is exactly what we're trying to get at in this podcast, trying to separate myth, mythology, and uh, real history, and looking at these conspiracy things and stuff like that, and trying to figure out what really happened. So we appreciate you coming on. Sorry about the background noise at times. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Jason. See ya. Yep. Bye. Thanks to Derek Feister for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.